oldest, uh, when our oldest Tim was about, uh, probably about two years old, uh, one day uh, we were getting ready to go out and um, he was struggling to put on his coat. So I, I don't remember exactly how old he was, but probably about two. And he was struggling to, to put on his coat. And so I was waiting for him. We were, we were going out and I was waiting for him and he was struggling along. And so I said to him, I, and he was, he was there, he was standing there training, and we're ready, getting ready to go. And I said to him, I said, Tim, let me help you with that. And he looks up at me with this defiant look on his face and he says, do it self. And I was like, okay, relax. You just, <laughs> relax, just do it. But just work on it yourself. But that, that look in his face and that, that, that tone of his voice, do itself. And what he was saying in his two-year-old wording was, I'm going to do this myself. I don't want any help. I don't want you to help me. I am going to do this myself. We might call this self-determination. This desire to do things for ourselves. In some ways, that's good. I mean, you don't want your kids to be always relying on you to zip up their jacket and to tie their shoes. You want them to learn these sort of skills and to have some level of independence. But this self-determination can also be a bit of a problem at times. And that word, even that word self-determination came to be used in the early 1900s to describe uh, a nation and the people that were in it as they were struggling for independence and and creating their own identity that the idea was, uh, and especially as the the colonial era was starting to fade and we were moving into a post-colonial time when the nations that were former colonies were starting to express their independence and the idea came up that they need to have the right of self-determination, of determining how they should be governed and who should govern them and uh, what languages they should be using and all these sorts of things. uh, So this came up in the early 1900s and... uh, and uh, it was the idea that you people should choose, should determine for themselves what they want for themselves, whether they want a monarchy or a democracy or a dictatorship. It shouldn't be the, the role of outside powers to impose that on them, but instead they should have the right of self-determination. They determine these things for themselves, but it needs to come from the people themselves. That term has grown over the years to include us as individuals, that we have that right of self-determination, that we determine things for ourselves, that we, we, it chafes us a little bit when someone tells us what to do because we want to decide for ourselves. We, it's not just, and it doesn't just relate to choosing the kind of government that we have, but it relates to all aspects of our lives. A dictionary definition of self-determination is the free choice of one's own acts or states without external compulsion. So this is the, that external compulsion is someone from the outside forcing you to do something. And so we don't, we don't like that in some ways. It kind of rubs us the wrong way. And yet we have to accept it too. Because we don't, if we take this to an extreme, it, it, it leads us to chaos or anarchy because we drive without any rules of the road. We end up driving at whatever speed because I'm not going to let anybody tell me what speed I should be driving on the roads. I don't want to have, uh, I want to be able to drive however, I, however fast I feel is, is, is good for me and nobody's going to tell me 
that I can't do that. Nobody's going to tell me which side of the road to drive on. Nobody's going to tell me anything. And that just, uh, of course, you can imagine that leads to anarchy. So at some level we accept that we, uh, that we cannot fully live out this self-determination. There are limits on it. And they're done for uh, the good of, of ourselves and for the good of all society and those uh, ones who enforce the limits on our self-determination are often called the police and that's, uh, or the government, and that's okay. Uh, but this is one point that's kind of interesting because at times Jesus talks about things that we experience in our lives and things we want, and he says, in fact, that's not the way it should be. And so he gives us a very different picture of our life, not a picture of, self-determination, but of Jesus looking after us and watching over us and caring for us. And that's the picture that we have in our text for today, which is John chapter 11, or John chapter 10, verses 11 to 21. And let me read that for you. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to Him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus is speaking these words and he's painting us a picture of him as the good shepherd and us as the sheep. The sheep are listening to the voice of the shepherd, listening for the voice of the shepherd. The shepherd is calling. The shepherd is there searching out the sheep and uh, the sheep are there. They're coming to him. And they're listening for His voice. And they're coming to Him because they're looking for the care. They're looking for the protection. They're looking for guidance in their lives. They're not looking to be self-determined. The self-determined sheep is, is going to be wandering on His own way. And the Bible talks about, uh, about each one of us as a sheep who has turned to His own way. But we're not supposed to be like that. Jesus is the shepherd who brings us together, who joins us together, who guides us in paths of righteousness, who leads us to still waters, who leads us to green pastures. These are all images of Jesus as the shepherd leading us. And so when we see this passage, when we think about what Jesus is saying, He is almost, in a way, giving us a job description for Himself because He is saying, I am the good shepherd. And He, he, says, he says that a couple times in that passage. I am the good shepherd. And so this is what we see here. The shepherd. And so let's look and see. What does the shepherd do? What does he look like? Uh, What what sort of things does he do for us? The first thing we see is the shepherd cares for his sheep. 
the shepherd cares for his sheep. That's his, one of the primary roles of a shepherd is to care for the sheep here. And in this passage, we, it answers a question that we might ask, which is how does the shepherd care for us, for his sheep? And it's, he, Jesus tells us quite simply, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus gives up his life for us. Those are simple words for us to say. But do we really grasp the reality of that? Of Jesus giving up his life for us? That might be a, a hard thing for us to, uh, to, to, uh, to accept. A hard thing for us to uh, uh, to, to come to grips with because often we have a picture of Jesus and sheep and it ends up looking like a Sunday school picture kind of like this, you know, with, with Jesus, the, the gentle one, holding the sheep and looking down lovingly at the sheep. And there's nothing wrong with that because that is part of the, the picture that we have. But here, he's talking about Jesus and Jesus is talking about himself and he's saying, I'm going to lay down my life for, for the sheep. And he compares himself to a hired hand who is going to uh, run away when danger comes. Instead, he's going to stand in the, in the way of the wolf who's going to come and attack the sheep. So maybe a picture of Jesus is more like this. And in this picture, we see uh, a representation of this passage where Jesus is standing there between the wolf and the sheep. And he's going to defend the sheep. And presumably, in, if you follow this picture, he's going to end up laying down his life to protect his sheep, to provide for his sheep, to give them what they need. And so this maybe is a better picture of, of what it's all about here in this passage. Of Jesus laying down his life, caring for his sheep, looking after them. But we see that the reality of this, as we, tr- as we think about this for a few minutes here this morning, the reality of this, is the second uh, person of the Trinity, the second person of the triune God, Jesus, the Son of God. He is that shepherd. And that's something that we need to stop and think about for a little bit. That who is this Jesus who gave his life for us? Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God. And so let's, uh, let's stop and think about that for a few minutes here. We worship this tri, what we call the triune God, the three-in-one God. The God's three persons in one, one God in three persons. And we refer to Jesus as the second person in that trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. And Jesus we would refer to as the second person. We worship. This is the God that we worship. This is the, as we sing these songs, as we lift our voices and our hearts to praise God. This is the God that we are, that we are praising. This three-in-one God. This triune God. And if you think, if some of you remember the older doxology, it says in one line, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Right? God in three persons, blessed Trinity. A few of you are nodding. You know, you know that, uh, that line in that, uh, in that song. That's the old doxology. And sometimes in those familiar songs, in those familiar passages, we, we gloss over them. We don't think about them. But we need to stop and think about that for a minute here. This is God in three persons, blessed Trinity. 
God in three persons with Jesus as the second person. So our Christian doctrine, the things that we believe, has been laid down for us over the centuries since the coming of Christ. The foundation of it was laid back by the Jews through the thousands of years up to the point of, from uh, the time of their existence up to the point of Christ. It laid a foundation of who God was and His character. And then as we came to Jesus, we, were encou- we encountered a different uh, something, something new, something that really hadn't been foreseen exactly uh, in the same way. So the Old Testament looks ahead to a, a Messiah, but that, who that Messiah was and what He was going to do wasn't actually entirely clear to them. And so when Jesus came, that's why you see that confusion among the Jews where they're wondering, is this the Messiah? Because it wasn't 100% clearly laid out. So they were looking for the Messiah. And as, other, as, as others came along, even before Jesus, they were looking and saying, is this the Messiah? And Jews today, some Jews today who do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, continue to look for the Messiah. If you, if you Google that term, you'll find that, the, that every once in a while someone pops up and the Jews say, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah who has come? And so, when Jesus came, there was that question, is this the Messiah? And who is this? And so the early church wrestled with that question. Who is this Jesus? And what exactly, who exactly is He? And so as they looked, as they thought, as they listened, as they recalled, as they read the words that were written, uh, the early church came up and said, this is a God, one God, holding on to that monotheistic uh, idea from the Jews that there is one God and only one. And they held on to that tightly, but they said there seems to be three persons in this Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that they could come up with to reconcile all the teaching and everything that they knew and all they had heard and learned about Jesus was to say that these three persons are all God. One God in three persons. And so that's what we uh, believe, and that's what we state in our statement of faith, that we believe this is one God in three persons, the Blessed Trinity. And so the early church put this into words and, and came up with that word. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but it is there in the early church as they struggled to figure out who was this God. This God who was more fully revealed in the coming of Jesus and in the giving of the Holy Spirit. What did that all mean? It means there is one God who exists in three persons. And they would say things like, we believe that God exists as three persons, but is one being having a single divine nature. The members of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal, one in essence, nature, power, action, and will. All three are eternal without beginning. So, sorry, we're getting into a little systematic theology class here this morning, but uh, it's, it, you'll, you, stay with me here. You'll see where I'm going with this. Um, so the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not just different names for one God. They're not just names for different parts of God so that you have a God sort of divided or a God, uh, it's not just a God who puts on sort of three different masks 
Uh, it is God in three persons, yet existing as one entity. That cannot be, they cannot be separated from one another. Yet each person of the Trinity is understood as having an identical essence or nature. They're not merely similar, but they are identical. They are equal. This is, uh, this is something that we struggle with. So the early church came up with, a, uh, not the early church, the medieval church came up with what they called the shield of the Trinity. And so they came up with this, and this is a stained glass window with it, and it's in Latin. Those of you whose Latin is a little rusty uh, might not uh, get much of that, but uh, if your Latin is good, you can figure that out. It's fairly simple, uh, but here it is in English that makes it a little easier for us to understand. And so in a simple kind of way, they said they defined it as a, as a series of not statements, is not, and is. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Father is not the Spirit, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And now we sort of wrestle with that in our mind. This is something we struggle with. We can't quite get our minds around this. And yet we get a glimpse of it in ourselves. Because we are made in the image of God, there is some uh, likeness of Him in us. And it's not a, never a perfect analogy, but it's sometimes helpful. We can think of ourselves, for instance, uh, for myself. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a pastor. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a neighbor. It goes on and on. You can think of all the different things that you are, and yet you're one person. And yet, someone may know you simply as a neighbor. Someone may know you as a colleague at work. Someone may know you as a friend. And so, in a, in a, in a way, and it's not a perfect analogy, you need, I need to be clear about that, but we get a glimpse of it, of that diversity in unity there. And then we also see it in, in nature. When you look at an ecosystem that's working together, all these elements that come together, to, uh, uh, they, they are distinct and separate, and yet they're part of one ecosystem. And you can kind of see it there as well. So you get a little glimpse of it in God's creation. These aren't perfect analogies, so they all break down very quickly, but they, but they help us to see that. And it might seem like a bit of a cop-out in this discussion, but in the end, we need to say that as theologian uh, Louis Burkhoff has said, the Trinity is a mystery far beyond our comprehension. It is the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. So at some level we can try and understand this and at another we simply have to say we cannot fully understand God. If we could fully understand God, then God would be a very small God indeed for us. If God was someone who I could fully understand, God would be very limited. God couldn't be God. He would be me. Because I can't fully understand God. And so at some level we need to just accept that there is something about God, this, this Trinitarian nature of God that we cannot fully understand and yet we accept as uh, what the Bible teaches here. Okay, why is this important? Why am I going through all of that? Back to our text in John Remember what Jesus says, He is the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now think about all I've just said. Describing the nature of God. The triune nature of God. God in the second person is Jesus Christ. This is one who was there at the point of very creation. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was there when things were created. Jesus has the power of God. Jesus is God. And this God gives up His life for us. Jesus is not just any old guy. What a friend we have in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is a friend. But He's not just a friend. He is the second person of the Trinity. The one who is there at creation. The one who will be there at recreation. As John says in Revelation, uh, he records Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the one who gives up his life for us. This is the one who willingly lays down his life for us. This is an amazing thing. So when Jesus says simply, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, we might just gloss over that. But we need to stop and think. This is the God of the universe. This is the God who created all things and who holds all things together, laying down his life for us. It's amazing when we stop and think about it, really, that he would do that for us. And Paul wrestles with this in the book of Romans a little bit. And he brings this up. And he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very simply, why would the God of the universe lay down His life for us? Because we were sinners. And we needed someone, we needed a Savior. We needed someone to save us from our sins. And He loved us so much, he, didn't, he wanted us to have that opportunity to be back in right relationship with Him. And the only way to do that was to send His Son to die on the cross, to lay down His life for us, to take the penalty for our sins. That's, that's the kind of care, that's the kind of love Jesus the Good Shepherd has for us. This is love to the ultimate, where He gives up His very life for His sheep. And Jesus contrasts Himself to the hired worker who will run away and leave the sheep to fend for themselves because He's not really invested in, in the sheep. He's not really concerned about the sheep. He's concerned about His wages. So the hired hands that Jesus talks about um, in, uh, in this passage in verses 11 to, uh, to 13 is, is simply doing it for the wages. And Jesus' point is here is that He's not doing it for the wages. He's doing it because He loves His sheep. Because if it's just someone doing it for the wages, sometimes the cost will get too high, the hours too long, the, the toll it takes on your, on your physical and emotional and spiritual well-being is too high and so you quit. The, job, the, the pay is just not worth it and so you quit your job and Jesus is saying it's not like that with Him. He stands in contrast to that. He is willing to, to do everything and, and lay down His life. And in verses 17 and 18, He goes back to that, uh, that idea of laying down His life. And uh, uh, He says that uh, He's going to lay down His life, but then He's going to take it up again. And He's all doing that. He says 
in verse 18, he has the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. He's doing this of his own free will. He is doing it uh, not under compulsion or not because someone is telling him to, but because he loves us. And so as we think about this shepherd and him laying down his life for us, we're reminded of his love for us and his care for us. And so we can rest in that. The second thing is the, sh- the shepherd knows the sheep in verses 14 to 15. It's something personal here. There's a close and personal relationship here when both parties get to know each other, the, the sheep and the shepherd. It's not a couple of strangers at a distance. It's not someone on the other end of the phone at a call center who is answering a call for you. But this is a, a close relationship. A relationship uh, between the sheep and the shepherd. So he says, uh, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So he's comparing the relationship that we have with Jesus to him and his Father and go back to that idea of the Trinity. He and his Father are, 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 are one. They're, they're both God. This is the, the Father. God the Father and God the Son. And he's saying, this is the kind of relationship I have with my sheep. And he goes on a little bit later in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, quite simply, I and the Father are one. And if you tie that back to this passage here, he says, I know my sheep know, my sheep know me just the way my Father and I know each other. And he, how would he describe the relationship between he and his Father? He would say, we are one. And he says, this is the way I am with my sheep. We are one. We are together. And so Jesus points to that relationship that he has with the Father of, the, uh, of, of a type of intimacy that he also has with his sheep. Relationships are a two-way street. What do we do to foster our relationship with the Good Shepherd? Do we listen to him? Are we listening to Jesus? Where do we hear Jesus speaking to us? Well, we hear him in his word. That's what we're reading today is the words of Jesus. And we let them... Uh, we, we stop and we listen to them. Do we spend much time listening to Jesus? There's lots of noises in the world around us that drown out those, those things, that drown out the voice of the, of the shepherd. There's lots of distractions in life that take us away from that, but we need to be careful that we stay and we spend time listening to Jesus. And when we listen to Him, then we take that time and make that effort to actually obey Him and uh, do what He asks us to do. And then we spend time talking to Him. That's how we build a relationship. We listen and we talk to one another. We never build a real strong relationship if it's only one way. It has to be going both ways. So we listen to Jesus and we talk to Him as we pray. And in that, we build that relationship with the, with the shepherd. Because that's what Jesus wants us to do. And then we see that the shepherd seeks out his sheep. In verse uh, 16, uh, he, he goes, he says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The good shepherd is concerned for all the sheep here. Those who are in the sheep pen, those who he knows are not in the sheep pen, he's going to go out and he's going to bring them in. He's going to seek them out. 
it's not only the ones in the sheep pen that He is going to care for, but it's all of the sheep. All of His sheep are ones that He is concerned about. So Jesus seeks to bring them in and He uses us today as His hands and feet doing that work of bringing His sheep into the sheep pen. Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of that body out there doing the work of the shepherd in a way. And Jesus says, uh, uh, as He calls His disciples, He says, come, follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. So even right from the start of Jesus' ministry, Jesus recognized that and wanted others to come and join Him and bring them into the sheep pen. Then we read about how how others responded to Jesus in verses 18 and and, and or verses 19 to 21. And the first suggestion is that this, this shepherd is possessed. This teaching that he's giving is not, doesn't make any sense to them. And they say he's demon-possessed or raving mad. And so this is one of the suggestions that the people they make as to what's going on here. They simply cannot believe anybody would say this sort of thing. So they struggle to un- they're struggling to understand it here. But then others say, no, this shepherd is a powerful one. He, they say, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that might seem a little bit out of context, but when you look back just before this, uh, this teaching that Jesus is giving on the Good Shepherd, if you look back in John chapter 9, right before that, that whole chapter is about a man that's born blind. Jesus heals him. There's all sorts of questions. Who caused this man? Who sinned to cause this man to go blind? And then there was questions of Jesus' authority. How did He do this? And He did it on the Sabbath. So they're concerned about Sabbath breaking. And the Pharisees are there and wondering, who is this one who healed this blind man? And the blind man, it's it's an interesting passage. The blind man seems to get a little frustrated with them because they keep asking, who was this one? And he, he, and he says at one point, I've already told you and you do not listen. He's getting frustrated with them. Why do you keep asking me this? I've told you this is Jesus who healed me. And this was a man who'd been born blind. So he'd been blind all his life and now all of a sudden he's there and he can see and everybody can see that he can see and everyone acknowledges that. And they're like, how did this happen? And so when some of the crowd there, some of the Jews there says, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They're referring to this man that we read about in John chapter nine, back in John chapter nine, and saying, "Why would a demon do such a thing?" And it's not uh, a demon that uh, would do this, but someone who has power and authority. And so we're left there at this point with Jesus laying down this uh, amazing teaching that He is the good shepherd, and He lays down His life for us. We might feel like self-determination is actually the best for us. But I suggest that Jesus, when He teaches us that He is the Good Shepherd, He's saying self-determination is not the best for you. What's better for you is to come to Me. Is to come and be My sheep and follow. Hear, listen to My voice. To follow Me. To let Me direct your life. To let Me take over, to let me show you to those green pastures and those still waters. Let me lead you. Instead of trying to lead yourself and getting into all kinds of trouble and all kinds of messes, let me lead you. Let me watch over you. In the end, this is what Jesus wants for us. 
is for us to really come to Him. And not just at that point of accepting Him as our Savior, but following Him and letting Him be the shepherd of our life day by day. That's how much He loves us and cares for us. That He doesn't want to just come into our life at one moment, but to walk with us every step of the way. And so our response then is to come to the shepherd and rest in His arms. To put aside our own desires and to to, to take care of ourselves, our own uh, desire for self-determination and say, I'm going to put that aside and I'm going to let Jesus take control of my life. To come into every area of my life and be our shepherd. It might be difficult. It might take time. And often it does. It takes time as we give our lives to, fully to Jesus. We give it a little bit at a time. And we give it to Him. And then we give a little bit more. Because there's some things, some parts of our life that we really, we really quite like. And we're afraid if we give them to Jesus, He might change those things. And we really maybe don't want to change. But that's what He wants. And that's what the Good Shepherd would do. He's going to, if He's going to change us, He's going to change us into something better until we come to Him. And maybe we have a little bit of a picture like this with Jesus picking up and carrying some of those sheep who are weak and injured. And you see the others are looking up at Him and looking to Him and looking to Him for guidance. They aren't trying to make it on their own, but they're crowded around the Good Shepherd and following Him. As the worship team comes, we're going to sing a song of uh, Jesus being the Shepherd. And so as we sing, let's think about that. Reflect on that. That Jesus is the Good Shepherd. And we come to Him and we follow Him in all that we do.